Well, I'm not sure how many of you woke up this morning and said, boy, I would really like to hear one of those biblical genealogies today. Uh, that's what we really need to hear. What could be more relevant uh, than hearing, uh, you know, all of these names from the Israel phone book? <laughs> uh, they're not the most popular aspects of biblical literature, these genealogies, but they are important. And today, programs like 23andMe uh, that offer you uh, DNA testing and ancestry background have become very popular, and maybe you have tried to track down your family tree uh, through one of these. A few years ago, before these programs came out, my dad was doing our family tree uh, the old-fashioned way, doing his own uh, homework and research, and he called me up after uh, some of his study, and he says, uh, son, we're not who we thought we were. <laughs> And he went on to explain uh, our family origins. Well, I have done those uh, programs, and 23andMe, as of this morning, said that I am 98% Northwestern European. That includes 71% British, and I am 1.1 Sub-Saharan African. And of course, all of the Dominicans in our church would object to this scientific data uh, because they believe I am a Dominican. And believe me, I would rather be a Dominican than a British uh, person. No offense to a Joel Beaver out there. Uh, I'm, I'm only kidding. Um, well, Luke wants us to know some stuff about um, uh, uh, Jesus's origins. Uh, and this family tree that he gives us uh, is tied to the temptation narrative that follows. In fact, the, the sequence of uh, these events, from the baptism to the, to the genealogy to the temptation, are all there by design by the writer Luke. You have, in the baptism account, which Shane uh, expounded last week, the declaration from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then you go to the genealogy, and it ends with Jesus being son of Adam, son of God. And then the temptations uh, begin with the devil saying to Jesus, if you are the son of God, uh, dot, dot, dot. And so the focus here in these verses is on Jesus being the son of God. And there is nothing more relevant in the world than to know who Jesus is. Now, if Luke were just writing a biography, he would not put the genealogy of Jesus in this place. As you probably know, if you've read through the Bible, this is not where Matthew puts his genealogy. He puts it right in the very beginning. And so Luke is making a theological point as he inserts this genealogy at the end of chapter 3 between the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of uh, Jesus. What is more, he's not just saying that Jesus is the Son of God, but that he is the victorious Son of God. Jesus came to reverse Adam's curse. Recall the words of John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8. This is the Son of God entering into the world, being the one who will crush the head of the serpent. He is the victorious son of God. Recall Luke's purpose of writing this gospel when he says that he's written these things to give us certainty about uh, the person and work of Jesus. And today we can be certain about this. We may not be certain about a lot of things in life, but we can be certain that Jesus is the victorious son of God. 
and we hang all our hope on him. The hope of eternal life and the hope in our daily fight against temptation and sin. Now, with this emphasis on Adam, we see that Luke wants us to read Luke 4 in light of Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve were tempted by the devil, right? Often people read these temptation accounts, and the takeaway is memorize scripture like Jesus. Make sure you show up to Awanas. And surely there is a lesson for us here on the importance of scripture. I'll say something about that. But there's a whole lot more to the story than that. Jesus is coming into the world as a unique person for a unique purpose, to triumph over the devil and to reverse Adam's curse. He is in the wilderness as our savior first and our example second. He is the son of God who has come to undo the darkness and usher in a new kingdom. You know, often when someone is inaugurated into uh, office as a president or governor, <clears throat> we often hear about what their first act in office will be. And it is usually to undo something or to start something. Someone was telling me recently of a newly elected governor who uh, what he did when he, when he first uh, came into office, uh, rescinding a bunch of things. And the baptism is, is, is this sort of this inauguration. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And what is his first act going to be of, his, of this kingly rule? It is going to be to go into the wilderness and triumph over the devil, showing that he has come to crush the head of the serpent and bring us into a new paradise with God. The first thing on Jesus' agenda is to deal a crushing blow to the devil. In his baptism, the heavens were opened. In his temptation, all hell is open. And he emerges victorious, which will be a pattern that he follows throughout his ministry until he delivers that great blow at Calvary. So let's look at this text today. First of all, I want us to see the context of the devil's temptations. Secondly, I want us to see the conflict involved in the temptations. And then thirdly, the conquest of Jesus over the devil's temptations. So the context, the conflict, and the conquest. First, the context. Consider the context uh, in the genealogy. I'm not going to go into detail on all of these names, but I do want to point out a few uh, features of it. First of all, we read at the very beginning that Jesus is the right age to begin this work. He began his ministry at the age of 30, Luke tells us. This signals uh, maturity, it signals readiness, uh, but there's probably more than, than that. In, in Greek culture, men often entered public service at 30, uh, and then in Jewish life, the Levites' service in the temple began at 30. That's probably most significant. It's also reminiscent of David, who uh, uh, was, was 30 uh, when he became king. Joseph was 30 when he entered Pharaoh's service. And so uh, we jump ahead, don't we, in these Gospels. Luke, like the other writers, apart from the one uh, scene of Jesus as a boy in the temple, uh, doesn't give us uh, anything during these kind of quiet years of Jesus's life and ministry. He apparently lived out these years uh, as an ordinary man. 
Luke gives us no fantasies about his quiet years, unlike the false gospels that exist today. Notice also that Luke highlights the virgin birth in a very, uh, a very striking way as he calls Jesus here uh, the son of Joseph, as was supposed, <laughs> he says. A very uh, striking way to speak of Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit. Um, we, we read also um, in this text of a unique ordering of names. This is the opposite order of Matthew's. Matthew begins with Abraham and goes to Jesus. Uh, Luke, however, begins with Jesus, and he goes not just to Abraham, but he goes all the way back to Adam and to Jesus being the Son of God. Further, both genealogies show that Jesus is in the lineage, the right lineage to be Messiah, as the, uh, giving his, his royal identity. So he note the names of David in verse 32 and Abraham verse 34. Interestingly, Luke relates Jesus to David through Nathan instead of Solomon to likely highlight Jesus' humble origins, uh, a lesser known son there. Now, what is really important, again, is by going back to Adam, Luke is, is signaling, signaling some things for us. And one of the things I think he's doing is showing us that Jesus came not just for the Jews, because he doesn't end with Abraham, but that Jesus is the Savior for the nations. Jesus stands in solidarity with the whole human race. He came as the obedient one in contrast to Adam, the disobedient one. Adam is called a son of God, you see in, in Luke's genealogy here. Having no biological father, God created him. He's called to image God's character. <clears throat> but Jesus is the son of God in a deeper in grander way. He redefines what it means to be the Son of God, as the temptation narrative goes on to show. Jesus is, as Paul says, the second Adam, the representative head of a new humanity. Romans 5, 19, for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, a perplexing question involves how Luke's genealogy fits with Matthew's. We do have some differences in these genealogies. Some say that Luke gives the genealogy through Mary and Matthew through Joseph, but that doesn't work, really, since Mary is not even mentioned here in this genealogy of Luke. Other suggestions have been made. <clears throat> Most think what we have is a royal genealogy in Matthew and a physical genealogy in Luke. These two accounts can be harmonized by appealing to Leverite marriage, where a brother provides an heir for the deceased brother, and cases of adoption as well. <clears throat> so Matthew may be following the royal line and Luke the biological line, but certainty eludes us on this particular question. This doesn't mean that one or both are mistaken. It simply acknowledges that our knowledge is partial and that the purpose of the Gospels is not to resolve this question. What is important is that both show Jesus as a descendant of Abraham and David, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Luke shows us that Jesus is the Son of God, begotten, not made, and he has come for all of humanity, every race, every tribe, every linguistic group. And finally, practically, this genealogy shows us that God keeps his promises and that he is sovereign over human history. Many of these people that you read in this genealogy are unknown, 
and yet they are playing a part in salvation history. One historian writes, history never looks like history when you're living through it. It always looks confusing and messy, and it always feels uncomfortable. Well, I think that's a relevant word today, isn't it? Our lives may feel like a series of disappointments, but did those who lived in the days of Adi or Ur <laughs> or Peleg know what God was doing? We know when we look back, but when we're in the middle of it, it can feel discouraging. But be encouraged today. God is sovereign over human history. And this genealogy shows us that. And the future is bright for all who trust in this God. Now, in addition to that, notice the first two verses of chapter 4 as we think about the context of this temptation. <clears throat> With the words, son of Adam, son of God, ringing in our ears, notice how Luke introduces the temptation account. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Jesus' entire ministry is directed and empowered by the Spirit. You see, right after the temptation in chapter 4, verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. When he gives the Nazareth sermon, which we hope to look at next week, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. His whole ministry, empowered by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, <clears throat> this battle in the wilderness is being fought by the Spirit. He is being led by the Spirit like Israel was led into the wilderness to be tempted and tried for 40 years. So this is not a surprise attack. This is part of God's plan. And like Israel, Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness here for 40 days. So we have Jesus being presented to us as not only the, the new Adam, but the new Israel. Recall in Exodus that Israel was also called God's son. And we're seeing here that Jesus will be victorious where Adam and Israel failed. He's in this wilderness. This is not, uh, you know, a pristine uh, place. If you've ever uh, seen pictures of the Judean wilderness, it was not only desolate, but it was frightening. When uh, Mark gives his account of this, it's very short, <clears throat> and he adds that Jesus is being tempted by and, and frightened by wild animals. So you got to put yourself into the humanity of Jesus here, into his sandals, as it were, and think about what it would be like for 40 days in a desolate, dangerous place with no food, in all of your weakness, being tempted by the devil. And 40 days here is, is indicating, and I think based on verse 13 we can draw this, that it wasn't just three temptations that Jesus uh, dealt with. He dealt with a continuing barrage of temptations. And I think probably what's happening is the gospel writers give us these three climactic temptations that would have had to have come from the mouth of Jesus himself to the gospel writers. They stood out in particular. Now notice the intensity of this conflict again. 40 days, he was hungry. The devil comes to Jesus <clears throat> as he often comes to us in our weakness. 
Think about the contrast here. Adam had everything but failed. Jesus had nothing and won. Adam had perfect conditions. I mean perfect conditions and caved in. Jesus had the worst but succeeded. Now Luke doesn't tell us anything about the devil other than he's there and his temptations. He assumes the readers are familiar with him. But as we read of him tempting Jesus physically and verbally, we are to think of Genesis chapter 3. This is only the second time in Scripture in which a human comes face to face with the devil, with Adam and Jesus. Of course, the devil has been influencing and tempting throughout the ages. But this is an intense battle being waged, and it is a battle that goes throughout the Gospels, climaxes at the cross and resurrection, and ultimately when Jesus gives him the final blow in Revelation chapter 20. And so Luke is wanting us to see that sonship requires obedience and a mission to fulfill. And that's where we turn next. We go from now from the context to the conflict. <clears throat> there are three temptations given to us by uh, the gospel writers. They can be broken down <coughs> uh, in in three ways, <laughs> in three parts, uh, but they can be labeled in a couple of different ways. You could label these as a temptation of provision, power, and protection. Another way to think about it would be a temptation of necessity, as Jesus tempted but with the bread. Temptation of immediacy, that he um, tried to usurp his, his uh, privileges and become king without the cross necessity, immediacy, or in the third one being certainty of, of, of testing God so that he can know that God has, uh, will protect him and bless him. Now, <clears throat> you may look at this later, but it's also interesting that the order of the temptations follows Psalm 106. And in Psalm 106, the psalmist is recounting uh, Israel's story in the wilderness. And the first temptation is of bread, uh, Psalm 106, 14 and 15, and then of worship, Psalm 106, 19 to 20, and then of the, temp the testing of God at Meribah, Psalm 106, 32 to 33, bread, worship, and testing. And again, Jesus is going to arise triumphant where Israel failed. So the devil here is essentially saying to him, uh, as he comes to him, if you are the son of God, uh, do these things. Prove your sonship. And Coming to him in an angle of, you know, take care of yourself, Jesus. You deserve it. Surely it is right to have provision for your needs. Why should the Messiah be hungry? Surely it is right to have power over all the nations. Surely it is right to claim protection from all dangers. So what kind of Messiah will Jesus be? Will Jesus use his power for personal ends? Will he establish an earthly empire? Will he work spectacular miracles for twisted reasons? He won't. Jesus shows that he has come on a mission as the obedient son, and he will not take the easy road, and that he has a better kingdom in mind. So temptation number one, stones into bread. In each case, the devil speaks, and then Jesus responds. The devil speaks in verse 3. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. 
If you're the son of God, why are you experiencing hunger? Jesus is starving, and he is, would very easily be tempted to gratify this desire for food. Most of us can't imagine going uh, without a, a meal or, or for one day. And here, Jesus, 40 days <clears throat> in a wilderness, being tempted. One writer says, at this point, Jesus is closer to death than at any other point in his life except for the crucifixion. And so he comes to Jesus again in his weakness. And we know that Jesus can do this. He can turn stones into bread. And we know it's not wrong to eat. Later in the gospel accounts, Jesus takes the bread and fish and feeds thousands. But the devil is asking Jesus to satisfy his own desires without trusting and obeying the Father. And so Jesus responds with Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Notice that first word there that Jesus uh, quotes from Deuteronomy, the word man. Jesus responds here. He, he could respond with direct revelation himself, but he's actually going to recite scripture and also underscore the fact uh, of his humanity. Man shall not live by bread alone. That is to say that we are to read these temptations uh, with the understanding that Jesus resisted them as a real man. And that is significant because the author of Hebrews says because these were real temptations that Jesus can sympathize with those who are tempted and help those who are tempted. This is Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18 because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Think about that. Jesus is able to help you in your temptation. <clears throat> he can sympathize. He loves you. And he has the power you need to overcome them. So he's been tempted here as a real person. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone. He appeals to the scriptures. True life, he says, in other words, comes from trusting God and being nourished by the word of God. That's what we need, to trust God and be nourished by the word of God. There's something more important than food. Jesus says in John's gospel, it's doing God's will. Now that context in Deuteronomy 8, God was calling Israel to trust him to meet their daily needs so that they would learn to to rely on him for daily provision. And here too, Jesus is resting in God's will, God's direction, God's provision. Adam and Eve were tempted to satisfy their hunger by disobeying the word. Here we see that Jesus conquered by choosing to be faithful to God and his word. Where Adam fell through disobedience and later Israel fell through grumbling, Jesus conquered by being faithful to his, to his father. So that's temptation number one, stones to bread. Number two, the crown without the cross, verses five to eight. The devil doesn't give up after one loss. He will fight until the very end where he, we read in Revelation 20, verse 10, he's cast into eternal fire. This is a temptation of power or a test of immediacy. The devil speaks in verses 5 to 7. The devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. 
and said to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. The devil offers Jesus power, influence, glory. If Jesus will just bow to him. This must have been a spectacular sight. Royal treasure, we imagine military power, cultural achievements. And we know that Jesus alone has the right to such glory. He was called to be the king. Of course, Jesus will eventually have all the glory, won't he? But before this new creation dawns, Jesus will endure a cross. How is it that Jesus will receive his kingdom? God's plan was for Jesus to suffer and die for sinners. Satan offered the shortcut, ecstasy without agony. He could be the king without the scorn, without the mockery, without the betrayal, without the abandonment, without the pain, without the wrath. He could seize the crown without the cross. At least that was Satan's idea. That was Satan's temptation. All he had to do was verse 7. Bow down and worship Satan. The devil wants praise and glory. He wants the worship that belongs to God alone. But what does Jesus say? Verse 8, he responds. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. <clears throat> Jesus tells the devil what is written in Scripture, once again highlighting the primacy of Scripture in the life of Jesus. This time he cites from that famous chapter where we read of the Shema that faithful Israelites recite regularly, <clears throat> this time from Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. And unlike Adam, Jesus will serve the Father alone. He knew that what the Father had promised him was infinitely greater than what the evil one had in mind. We read of verses that speak to that in the Old Testament, like Psalm 2, 7, and 8. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth your possession. Further, if Jesus would have given in, not only would he have not seen the glory of this new creation, but Satan would have become his Lord. And that is the devil's ambition in everyone's life. It has been since the garden to be Lord. And the, it's, a, it's the reason why it got him cast out of heaven. But Jesus doesn't compromise nor waste time with this temptation, and neither should we. He quotes this text, refuses to worship Satan, and refuses this popular path to power. He refused the route of being a lesser Messiah, and he chose the cross for us. His goal was not the path of ease, but to save a people for himself. You see, in the, this wilderness, friends, Jesus is denying the devil for you and for me. He is choosing suffering for you and for me. And so he waits to receive the real kingdom, that the Father prepared for him. There was a God-ordained order, suffering and then glory. And we follow this order as his people, don't we? The third temptation is putting God to the test, verses 9 to 12. 
Jesus has rejected this temptation for provision, choosing to obey God and rely on God instead. He's rejected the temptation for power, choosing the cross instead. And now he rejects the temptation of protection, as the devil thinks of it, choosing not to test God, but to trust God. If the first is a temptation of necessity and the second of immediacy, the third is a test of certainty. Do you really believe that God has got you, that he's with you? Now, interestingly, before we read verses 9 to 11, notice that Luke uh, uh, has a different order of the temptations than Matthew. Luke places this one <coughs> last. Luke ends with Jerusalem, and I think that is also uh, kind of foreshadowing or signaling of, of Luke's intention. He has Jerusalem on his mind in both Luke and Acts, as we'll see as the study goes on. But nevertheless, we read in verses 9 to 11, the devil speaks, <coughs> and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So this temptation occurs at the pinnacle of the temple at its highest point. <coughs> that would have been the, the southeastern corner with the Kidron Valley below. And the devil has a challenge here. He says, Jesus, since you're the son of God, you should just jump down and see if the father will protect you. He should, he should uh, test to see whether or not the father would be faithful. You see, Satan is desperate by now, and it's significant, I think, that we see Satan now quoting scripture himself, that the devil knows the Bible. And so he actually cites scripture to support his case, or at least he tries. He cites Psalm 91, um, where we read of God's protection of his people. And there was a certain Jewish belief during this time that Psalm 91 spoke directly of the Messiah and that some actually thought the Messiah would leap from the pinnacle of the temple, proving that he would be the Messiah. You could imagine people's reaction to such a stunt that uh, you could win certain people, uh, people would, would think, by a spectacular act. I mean, that's way more appealing, isn't it, than a humble life of obedience and a crucifixion. But Jesus does not play into these games. He didn't come to be evil Knievel. He rejects the daredevil stunt. There's something else on his mind. And again, he appeals to scripture again from that same chapter in Deuteronomy chapter six. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He does not challenge his father but trust his father. So we learn a lesson here. Do not test God. Jesus shows us this. This is at the heart of sin, putting ourselves at the center. You know, if, if God will do something, then I'll believe in him. Well, Jesus here is showing us a better way. We are called to trust God, not test God. Jesus, the new Adam, the new Israel, the king of kings, trusts his father. He doesn't challenge his father. He doesn't demand something of the father to show his love and faithfulness. He doesn't demand that he show it in a spectacular fashion. No, 
the Father will be with him and bless him day by day by day as he does with us. He knows that, the, the, that power and love do not have to be proven at every turn and in spectacular ways. So he rejects the temptation. And he chooses a different leap of faith, a much greater leap of faith, obedience to death on a cross. Interestingly, an angel doesn't protect him, as the psalm says uh, will happen to, to God's people. But later, an angel strengthens him prior to his agony of the cross. And at the cross, Jesus does eventually put his life into the Father's hands, but it's not a leap from the temple, but hanging there on the cross, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. The day came when the Father did prove his faithfulness to his Son by raising Jesus from the dead. You want a sign that Jesus is Messiah? He's risen from the dead. And Jesus is willing to wait for this. Verse 13, finally, the conquest. In the end here, we see that Jesus passes the test. Luke tells us, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The whole gamut of temptations, every temptation. We read of these three demonic ones and three biblical responses to them, and that Jesus conquered. Satan came to Jesus like a bully comes into a classroom. And for hundreds of years, the bully won over humanity. And now Jesus stands up to him and wins. And like a defeated bully, he doesn't seem so strong anymore because he is our savior. The devil leaves him, not entirely, but for the moment. Illustrating James's words in James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so for the moment, the evil one is defeated, and so he concedes. We're going to see demonic activity, of course, throughout the gospel. We see Jesus speaking of Satan wanting to sift Peter like wheat and of Satan entering Judas. But here, as a defeated one, he leaves for another time. And so we end with Jesus being faithful in the wilderness. He is the faithful and obedient Son of God. Jesus has come into the world to destroy the works of the devil. And what we see next in the Nazareth sermon is Jesus speaking about these things. As he says, he's come to set people at liberty. How he's, he's come to give sight to the blind. He, he here in the wilderness is beginning to reverse the ravages of the fall. Adam turned the garden into a wilderness. Jesus goes into the wilderness to give us a garden. And so put your trust in this Jesus today. He triumphed over the devil in the wilderness. He triumphed over him in his ministry. He triumphed over him at Golgotha. And he will finally triumph over him in the end. He alone gives us the real freedom and joy we've always longed for. And Jesus does give us an example to follow, doesn't he? To live by God's word, to worship God alone, and to do God's will even when it's hard.
to not doubt God's word and not doubt his love for you. To not seek earthly glory, but to seek God's will. To not take the easy way out, but to live sacrificially in light of the glory that is to come. And yet he gives us a whole lot more than example here. He gives us hope. Jesus isn't in the wilderness primarily as our example, but as our Savior. He is the victorious Son of God. And because Jesus remained faithful in the wilderness, he is, he, he, and would go on to be uh, obedient to the end of his life, he would be that great atoning sacrifice for sinners, the sacrifice that we need. And our ultimate victory today, victory over sin and death and the devil, comes through our union with the victorious Son of God. He has come to restore paradise and to usher in a new kingdom. By his obedience in the wilderness, through his perfect life, his death and resurrection, he has opened up the way to paradise. He will give us entry into this kingdom, all who trust in him, which is why we don't have to be anxious today. You know, when Jesus is talking about why we should not be anxious in, later on in Luke's gospel in chapter 12, he says, fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. <laughs> fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is made possible through faith in the Son of God. As Luther said, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Thus ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. He must win the battle. Church, the right man is on our side. He gives us the ultimate victory over Satan, and he gives us the grace and power we need in our daily temptations. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Father, how kind you are to give us your word. And I pray that today you would encourage your people as we are scattered about today with your word, that today you would increase our level of gratitude for what Christ Jesus has done for us and for all that he will do for us and what he is doing right now in us. Even this week, may our hearts soar in worship to our Christ. As we say, hallelujah, what a savior. Bless your church, even this day we pray you would keep us safe to protect us and bring us back at the appointed time. We love you, we praise you in Jesus' good name, amen.